Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology no-caps board view podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Amanda Redfern. So today we're going to continue with our oral boards review. And today we decided to go to the flip side and do pediatric exotropia. And to remind everyone, these are, if you haven't listened to our previous oral board review episodes, these are like quick hits. These are the kind of the pace and the extent of differentials that you probably should be thinking of if you get one of these cases in your in your actual oral boards. We also think it's really helpful for you know more junior residents in terms of the quick things to think about when they're in clinic and seeing like a new pediatric exotropia patient and what they should be thinking about on their differential. And so as a result, there are probably going to be kind of like far zebras that we will not discuss at length in this episode. Okay, so for this one, let's say they show you a picture of a seven-year-old with a large angle exotropia. What are the most common things that are going to be in your differential, Amanda? So an intermittent exotropia is going to be the most common. So it breaks down into four different types. You don't need to know the four different types, but just understand that there are different kinds of presentations, whether that is just divergence excess, or if there's a component of a high ACA ratio, or just plain convergence insufficiency. So that would be an exodeviation that is worse at near than at distance, or maybe only apparent at near than at distance. In our esotropia episode, we talked about congenital esotropia at length. Is there a such thing as congenital exotropia? Yeah, there is. It is far less common than uh, congenital esotropia, but it does happen. It can be intermittent or it can be constant. And if you do see this starting very early in life, you should be looking for other craniofacial abnormalities. But we can talk a little bit more about that in the history and physical because there is an association with craniofacial disorders and other disorders. So I guess most commonly exotropia will be intermittent exotropia, especially in the pediatric population. But there are definitely things that you don't want to miss if you see a patient, kid or not, that has exotropia. One is sensory exotropia. Just like you can have sensory esotropia, you can have sensory exotropia from anything that's um, including, you know, stopping vision. It could be cataract, it could be retinal detachment, it could be, it could be anything interrupting vision in that eye. Also, a third nerve palsy can look like exotropia. You know, it can be easy to miss that it's like not just out, but also down to the side. So definitely consider third nerve palsies in your examination. There's also an important thing, you know, you can term positive angle kappa. Some people lump in pseudo exotropia in with this. That's basically where the fovea is dragged off temporally in the retina. Maybe the, one of the more common reasons for that would be retinopathy prematurity with the ridge pulling on the, the macula and the fovea and dragging it off temporally. Because the fovea is off temporally, then the eye might exodeviate so that the, the temporal fovea cannot fixate properly. So they could have a pseudo-exotropia that one needs to really look out for that's very testable. And then lastly, you know, this isn't very dangerous by any means, but Duane's retraction syndrome, thing. but it's something to, to think about, especially in your exam. Speaking of exam, what based on this differential, what specifically are you looking for, Amanda? So let's start off with history, and we touched on some of this. You're going to want to know about their birth history. Were they born premature? Were there complications around their birth? Because you're really looking for um, ROP or signs that something was off. You want to know how they're developing. Are there developmental delays that could 
make you think that there is some underlying developmental disorder. And then in terms of your assessment, you're going to do your basic pediatric exam. So you're looking at vision and looking for evidence of amblyopia. You're going to do an ocular motility exam and make sure that they're actually able to move their eyes in all directions. Otherwise, you should start thinking about cranial nerve policies or Duane syndrome. And then, of course, you're going to be doing the sensor motor exam with the however you want to measure the exotropia. And then you're going to also look inside the eyes to look for any evidence of macular dragging, ROP, or in or any sort of opacity that could cause a sensory exotropia. Um, and then we, once they're dilated, you want to retinoscope and do a cycloplegic refraction so you really know how well they're seeing. The order of this may vary depending on how purist you are, because technically speaking, some of these, some things should be checked in this exam before you disrupt their um, fusional ability. Uh, I think that's more of a discussion when we go into greater detail in these disorders, but sometimes it's really helpful to check things that require fusion first before you start to cover an eye. Yeah, yeah, because like, you know, to remind folks with intermittent exotropia, that's often something that kind of comes that becomes apparent when like someone is you know under cognitive load or they're starting to to lose attention so like a classic example like an adult is sometimes you can get an intermittent exotropia when they you know drink alcohol because i can kind of break down their fusional control or on a kid when they're tired like at the end of the day so same thing at the end of an exam they can lose fusional control and and, and then they can the exotropia can become more apparent i think the order really matters a lot more um Probably not in your general clinic, probably in your peds clinic, but it, yeah. in in your peds clinic where you're really trying to break down which of those four different types of exotropias, sorry, intermittent exotropias that I had mentioned before, there are uh, testing where you do actually occlude an eye for a certain period of time to bring one out. And if you can imagine that affects the exam, you can uh, imagine that the order that you do the exam in matters here. Yeah. And then treatment, again, we're not going to go into full detail for all of these different conditions. Assuming that your whole examination reveals that it's intermittent exotropia, some things to consider are, one, the, probably the biggest thing is to look for amblyopia. Again, that's not very common in intermittent exotropia, but if they do have amblyopia, then you need to consider patching. It, it's possible that they don't have stereo and the exotropia alternates, and in that case, you do alternate patching. If they have significant myopia, then you can consider an over-minus um, refraction, because that that can induce accommodation to um, to minimize that exotropia, and if the cause of their you know apparent exotropia is convergence insufficiency, then they can do exercises like pencil push-ups as well to to, to help um, you know help control the the convergence insufficiency. In terms of when to operate, if it's truly like an intermittent exotropia, then usually you have to wait until there's poor control or there's evidence of amblyopia to to consider. The, um, the, the consider surgery. There's all kinds of like grading criteria one can use to determine whether someone has quote poor control or not, which you won't go into here. And I don't think they'd expect you to know on your oral, oral boards. But in general, that's that's what you need to know that you don't have to like jump into surgery usually with intermittent exotropia. Of note, I'd say later in life, um, there can be an indication for doing surgery because there's significant psychosocial stress yeah. related to having 
manifest exotropia or manifest exodeviation. And so when we do surgery for those reasons, there are careful parameters to make sure you're not going to induce diplopia in someone who's used to this eye position. But um, it is not considered a cosmetic surgery. It is actually considered a reconstructive surgery. Oh, I didn't know that was that. There's a distinction. Yes, BCSE says so. Good, good. I think it's really important. I think some of the happiest patients I've seen are, are patients who had exotropia and then got surgery and then got it, you know, um, you know, were able to get it under control there. So, assuming they didn't get diplopia. Uh, yeah, is there anything else you want to talk about, Amanda? Uh, no, I think that was good. Um, yeah. Uh, this is not the most exhaustive list for exotropia as it was not the most exhaustive list for esotropia, but is meant to hit the high points for your oral boards exam. And for more information on this, ask Ben for more episodes on Pete's. Okay, if you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes for Ears. If you like support the podcast, a rating review would be really helpful. We will, we are working to try to get more pediatrics episodes out there. I I definitely agree. That's kind of a a sore spot with with the podcast so far. Uh, Thanks for much time. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.